Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of Soberland. I am your host, Lindsay Cowan. And today's guest is my friend and my sponsor in AA, Jill R. Welcome, Jill. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Thanks for being here. Have you um, been on a podcast before? No, never. This is my first time. Do you I'm listen to podcasts? I do. And I actually, as a n- total dork move, listen to a couple other sober <laughs> podcasts just to hear how people talk. To prep for this? To prep oh and like, listen to their tone and like how fast they talk because I know when I get excited especially when I talk about something I'm passionate about mm-hmm. I can talk really fast oh my God, most guests don't even listen to my podcast <laughs> and you like prepared for this it's amazing and I have listened to your podcast oh, too and great. it was I listened to you talk to your best friend and it really and you talked about asking me to be your sponsor mm, yeah which made me cry oh my god because it's really special it's a special thing and I know we're going to talk more about that yeah. later yeah so I wanted to um, talk about some interesting meetings that I've been to this week in uh, Los Angeles because I feel like we have a really unique place here where like people have AA meetings. Like I went to one at the comedy store, which is like, that's like my favorite place in LA in general. So that was just like really awesome to go to like an AA meeting there. And um, then I went to one um, at a crystal store, which have mm-hmm. you been to that one? I've heard of it. I have not been to it because I also he- heard it has a reputation for going like two hours long. It was, yeah. <laughs> typically <laughs> meetings are like an hour, but um, this one was an hour and a half. So yeah. it was a little bit long because they let everybody share and they don't ah. finish until everyone has. So Got yeah, it. I can see how it could go. Yeah, c- it could go really long. I've also been to a meeting uh, when I was in early recovery at Molly Malone's, the Irish uh, bar. Isn't that a bar. Yeah. It's an Irish bar. It might be closed now. I don't know. And I believe it was on. It's like Fairfax and Sixth. Mm-hmm. And the most. Can I swear? Yeah. yeah. The most fucked up thing was. I remember it was an it was like a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. The meeting. And I remember walking in and there were some people at the bar drinking and I judged them. And I'm like, <sighs> now looking back, I'm like, you're so rude. Like you it was probably me at the bar. <laughs> It was like older men, like your like typical idea of like what an alcoholic, like drinking early in the morning, like yeah. old man, like sad, crying into his beer or whatever. And, um, you know, it could have been a million reasons, right? Like they could work the midnight shift and yeah. they were just having a nightcap to go. Like it didn't even necessarily have to be like they were alcoholic drinkers. It's just I, uh, well, I was really, I struggle with judgment, you know, and especially back then, really, really judgmental and like you know, also probably a little bit judging myself that I was going to an AA meeting that at is nine so in the morning funny. at a bar. At a bar. Yeah. Way to like really test your limits. Like <laughs> let's all get a bunch of alcoholics to go to a bar and not drink. Yeah, in I the back that. room, they used to have a meeting there. That's so cool. Um, the crystal meeting was really cool because it was a women's one, which is, I feel like is always special when it's just mm-hmm. like just women. People can like open up more. And then um, instead of chips which like if you don't if you're not familiar with AA um, they give chips as like milestones as for like 60 days or 30 days 60 days 96 months nine months and then your big one is one year and so the crystal store actually instead of chips gave me crystals which I thought was so cool I mean that's enough to make me want to relapse <laughs> so I can go back and get newcomer <laughs> crystals so you can start, yeah I love crystals so they, much they gave me I actually have them right here they gave me this like rose oh, quartz for so um beautiful. for like as a welcome chip mm-hmm. which 
that I was looking that up is like the stone of love. This one. That tiger's eye? Yeah, for nine months, which I wow. um, recently hit. I, I took one for that. And um, tiger's eye, yeah. I really don't know that much about them, even though I'm very into like, you know, spiritual things and I have my tarot cards and all that kind of stuff. But crystals is like the one thing I've never really gotten into. And um, so I got these and I like carried them with me and just like crazy shit started happening. It was like so what? I just like was super motivated to like just get stuff done for the podcast. I was like making connections with people and emailing and like submitting the podcast to like different things and doing a lot of writing and just like super motivated. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I was like, maybe it's the crystals. And so I looked up the meaning of the tiger's eye and it is really great for like dreamers or people that are like creatives, but maybe like feeling creatively stuck. And so it really helps like boost your motivation and inspires you. So it's like pretty that. spot on for like yeah. what was happening with me. And yeah. I was just like, I'm a believer. <laughs> I um, got into crystals before I got sober. I worked for a woman who um, I just I worked like 14 hours a day, seven days a week. We were all, we're, I, I work in uh, film and television and commercials and we were always doing like commercial back to back on top of each other commercials and um and I, I hated my life. Like, honestly, I hated my life. And I remember I wandered into the um, the Emporium, li- li- Libertine Emporium on Hillhurst. I mm-hmm. might not be saying that right. I've been to that for yeah. Uh, it's the most magical place. And I walked in and I told the girl who was, woman rather, who was working behind the counter, um, I hate my boss. Do you have any crystals that can help me? And she gave me rose quartz and black tourmaline because they also have protectant properties and they're like little pocket sized ones and I remember I sent a picture to my best friend and she was like well if they don't actually protect you you can just throw them at your boss when she (laughs) makes you mad she's like and then you can run away (laughs) yeah she's like and then you can run away and so that was my introduction into crystals and then also I remember right before I got sober I had like $70 to my name and I went to the same store and bought chakra candles because I just didn't know what was wrong with me and um I bought every, I spent like my last dime on chakra candles maybe two weeks before I got sober and I burned them all to the ground or, you know, not to the ground. I burned them to, mm-hmm. to, to their wick um, like in one day, you know, because I just was like, I need these things to work. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like something fixed me and um, the chakra candles were not the answer. However, I do use chakra candles every day now? yeah i use chakra incense and chakra candles and i i, I do believe in the healing pro- i mean crystal i have crystals everywhere yeah i think um they they can definitely work and can be like an additional powerful tool if you are like living your life as you should be connecting well, with yourself and your higher power exactly and, all that. and it, it works off of an open energy i mm-hmm. think well, I, that's what i believe i mean I, maybe other people have had other experiences but for me when it comes to spirituality in all forms, it, if I'm not open, it doesn't work. It's not going to connect, mm. you know, and it's not going to speak to me because um, I'm just shut off and closed down in that way. So, yeah, like, I mean, it was just like my best thinking at the time. Yeah, you're just like, desperate. You're yeah. like, I need something to help <laughs> yeah, me. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, well, I think that might be a good transition because I'd love to hear your story. Okay. If we can just Have get right into it. it. Okay. So when I 
well, maybe we should talk about how we met because when oh, I, yeah. I met you the first time I tried to get sober, which only lasted 30 days because I just wasn't ready. You what know. year was that? Ooh, I want to say 2016 after okay. like my third concussion. <laughs> I do remember you having a concussion. That was what, yeah, it was yeah. more fear from like so many injuries that I was like, I'm, you know, I keep hurting myself. I really need to do something, but it wasn't, I wasn't ready to like make that change and give that up. So it didn't last long, but I was going to meetings then and I met you at a meeting mm-hmm. and everybody did, you know, I, I think I spoke and said that I was an, I was a newcomer. And so when you do that, you have like people that come up to you afterwards, which is great. But a lot of times people will just like get your number and you'll never hear from them again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you actually like reached out to me and um, we got like coffee mm-hmm. and we talked. And I think then you told me like a shortened version of it. Um, oh, I remember at the coffee shop, mm-hmm. I told you a really quick version and it was kind of awkward because two of my friends joined us and I was in the oh, middle. Right. Do you remember this? I was yeah. in the middle of telling my story and they had probably heard it a hundred <laughs> freaking times at that point, you yeah. know? So I was like, it was one of those very like intimate moments, but then like two people who showed up who know me very well and were very patient, but it was like kind of an awkward experience. Yeah. I, right? A little, I think like, then we had to get to a meeting. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that I heard it, but that was a couple years ago. So, um, and then when I decided to get really get sober this time around, and um, decided to really use AA to help me, because I've, I've mentioned and shared my story in the podcast. But the first nine months of my sobriety, I was just what they call dry, where I was just not drinking, but not in a, the AA program and working the steps. And that can be um, very, very difficult, and it was. Um, so when I made the decision to fully immerse myself in AA, the first person that came to mind um, for help and to be my sponsor was Jill. So um, I think I had been waiting for you to ask me since 2016. What? Because I knew we had a connection. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I knew like I knew that we connected, and I felt like I had the ability to carry the message to you, which is a really important component to a sponsor sponsee relationship Mm -hmm. is because the sponsor sort of acts as the guide, right? You know, especially in the early, early days, you know, they really show you all the tools and like, but yeah. So when you, when you text messaged me to ask me to meet up, I had this like intuitive feeling. And I remember telling my roommate, I I haven't heard from her in a while, but I just, I have this feeling she's going to ask me to sponsor her. And then I remember I felt so bad. I had to bail on you on the coffee before the meeting, but we still met at the meeting and you were like, you just like right away asked me Mm -hmm. like as soon as I sat down and I was like kind of thinking in my head, like this is the moment I've been waiting for. Oh my gosh. Well, I I just knew like that you are a person that's really working the steps the right way and you go to meetings a ton and you are a great person to have as like a leader guiding me through this. And so it's like, if I want anyone to do this, I want the best, you know? Thank you. <laughs> that uh, that means a lot to me, you know? And like, I just, I honestly, I just, well, I maybe I should s- sort of say how I got to where I am today, which is like, yeah, totally. you so know, how long have you been sober for? I got sober. Uh, my sobriety day is August 18th, 2014. Wow. So I have just over four and a half years. That's awesome. Yeah. And like, it's to say it out loud sounds surreal to me. Honestly, that's I never, ever, ever imagined that that would be my life's path or my story or my journey or anything like I I never wanted. I never intended to get sober and I certainly never intended to get sober through 
Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm -hmm. you know, and become like a super um, productive member of that community to be like highly involved. Like I just I really didn't think that was going to happen, you know. So like I grew up um, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up, you know, two parents. I have three brothers, uh, really normal like childhood, you know, like I didn't really want for anything. Um, I did not grow up with alcoholism in my home. you know, uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, you know, in AA, we don't diagnose anyone, but, you know, he had a heavy drinking problem. I wouldn't, I can't, I can't technically. Your grandfather? My grandfather oh. did. And um, so my dad grew up with a lot of, like, alcoholism or alcoholism type behaviors in the home. And, you know, so as a result, like, I have never seen my dad drunk. I've, he's never raised a hand to us. Like, not like nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he's still a human being. He's like, made mistakes. He's solid enough to, like, scare him straight, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's deal. not to say he's never drank before. My dad mm-hmm. dr- drinks alcohol, but, like, at a wedding or a special event or, you know, like, maybe, maybe, maybe I've seen him, like, crack a beer open after, like, a long day of work. My dad works really hard, you know? My mom, um, she just is, like, one of those people. She's like, I don't like how it tastes. You know, and I just want to say really quick to, um, you know, while I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, like I speak for myself only. I don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. And this is just just my experience and mm-hmm. in, in my life and what has happened to me. And so, you know, I grew up, um, but I was a pretty like I was a pretty like I had childhood migraines by the time I was six. I was pretty serious. Like I was really I was a competitive gymnast. I was pretty up. I don't want to say I was uptight, but like my like my remembering, like if I think back to myself, which to be honest, I'm 34 years old now. Like I don't remember a ton of my childhood or what it was like. And like I remember once in therapy being really concerned about not being able to remember my childhood like crystal clear. And my therapist was like, you dump old memories so that you can create so you can have more recent ones in your brain she's like it doesn't mean you had like some like trauma you don't remember and that you've been blocking out your entire childhood she's like you just forget your childhood Mm -hmm. but like I would say I was a pretty uptight kid I didn't want to be seen as different you know I was but but what's crazy is like I always fit in I always had friends I um you know as I got older and in school, like I did okay in school. I didn't do great, but I didn't do bad either. Um, but I was sort of like always off in like a little fantasy world, you know, like in my own little fantasy world, I like to read a lot. I, I like to um, sort of just be, I like to be checked out as a kid mm-hmm. um, and not in a, in a bad way or anything. And, you know, I was a pretty good kid. Gymnastics, honestly, like really like sports, I do believe like really saved me from getting into a lot of trouble. And also like I had a pretty strict upbringing, like mm-hmm. my parents were strict. Right. And so what's funny about that is like my perception say when I got sober, newly sober or like le- years leading up to this, like I basically would have like described it as, I, I'm a bit of a over exaggerator so I would have described it as like being a victim of child abuse when really it was like my parents just wanted me home at 11 o'clock at night mm. you know but my perception of that like was like ruining my life exactly right so you know I was um a bit, a bit dramatic and um I think you know for me what happened was I started what in LAAA would consider later which is about 15 
um, I smoked weed for the first time. Wait, that's late. In I, f- I feel like I, people would consider that late. Oh my God, I'm like super late. I was like eight, 17, 18. Yeah, I mean, I hear stories often. A lot of people get sober very young here. And um, they start at like 10, 11, and 12. But I think it really depends on your upbringing and if you have access to it. Yeah. That's what I think, right? Because like my parents didn't really drink. So I didn't have access to it. Now that you say that, I do. Yeah, that is something I see when people ha- share their stories in AA meetings. It's like, yeah, they start at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but I think like there's a good amount of people like us that it happened later in their teens too. But, but even like at 34, like 17 years ago, that's a half my lifetime ago, right? By the time I was 17, I had started college and I was drinking every day, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I think back to that, girl like uh, to me I'm like 17 is really young Mm -hmm. you know really really young and like I think two people want like a little bit of gutter bravado you know and so they want to make it seem and it's it is hardcore and start I mean drinking and using drugs by the time you're like 12 13 years old that's that's pretty intense Mm -hmm. right so um for me I started smoking weed around 15 um and you know that progressed into um, drinking. But, you know, a lot of people talk about, like, the first time they drank or used a substance that, like, they had this feeling of, like, oh, like, I have arrived. Like, I, like... Like a deep, like a big deep breath. Yeah. So I didn't have that. I think I was aware of my grandfather's drinking. And I'm a pretty smart... I'm pretty smart in the... I'm not school smart, but I'm pretty smart. I'm intelligent. Street smart. I'm street smart. I'm intelligent. And so I knew that there was a good chance that I could potentially have a problem with drugs and alcohol. So um, when I started drinking, I started by drinking alcohol, smoking weed. Um, I, I do remember having the relief of like getting a substance, but it wasn't like I knew it was always going to be a problem for me. I think deep down, I really did think I always knew that it would be an issue. And so, um, you know, that sort of progressed and like, you know, I did face some consequences early on. I, you know, I almost failed out my very first semester of college, um, which led to like, uh, my parents not paying for like, you know, a couple semesters of school. So in order to stay in, I did have to like take some student loans and like work a job and like really like champagne problems, honestly, like the student loan long since paid off. I'm not like, I'm not like suffering (laughs) from this, but I will say like it limited my choices. I, um, I was in a sorority and that was actually, um, you know, that was a great place to hide out because the drinking culture. So, uh, it's just normal. Yeah. yeah, it's normal. It's just normal. It's like you drink alcohol like every single day. I mean, we would skip class. We would smoke weed. We would drink alcohol, like go to the fraternity house when we should be in school. And, um, you know, just I think the only thing like in hindsight for me is like I just I'm bummed that the college is the only thing I truly regret because I think I I did not realize what a gift I had been given to have two parents who could afford to put me through school. And, um, you know, I had had dreams of like becoming a doctor and in the end I got a journalism degree, which is like, no, not to say there's nothing that I, but I picked that degree because you didn't have to take tests. So Mm -hmm. it didn't really get in the way of what I wanted to do. There's a lot of like 
writing assignments, though, I'm assuming, with journalism. Yeah, but I like writing because it's fantasy, right? It oh, can get me out fantasy, of, gets yeah. me out of my head, yeah. you know? Um, so uh, after I finished school, I moved to Los Angeles. I was 22 years old. I moved to L.A. and um, was pretty quickly in my early 20s introduced to cocaine. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the thing that... Um, that, that that was a definite love affair. Like, I still, to this day, think about it and think, like, it's. I get why people, like, give their kids up. <laughs> you know? It's like, addictive. I get it. Yeah. You know? And I was listening to um, some podcasts, not sobriety-related, but addiction came up, and it was something like heroin's, like, the most addictive substance, and then cocaine's, like, the second most addictive substance. And, um... And I loved it. Like, mm-hmm. I loved it a lot, and I used it a lot. And it is definitely a drug that you can easily find in Los Angeles. Very it's easy. Everywhere. However, I'm really manipulative, and I've never had a drug dealer. So I would get either a boyfriend that would always have it, or um, yeah, I had a friend at the time. She had a couple dealers, but, like, I never went. I never, like, I never participated in all that stuff. It was kind of an amazing feat to know how much drugs I was taking and consuming and had on me at all times and never once had to like seek it out myself. So Mm -hmm. as a result, like, you know, I really was protected. I think I kept a lot of codependents around me who like couldn't say no to me or didn't want to say no to me. And then if they did say no to me, they had to like face the wrath of Mm -hmm. like my emotional abuse. Right. Cause like addicts are manipulated. They're, we're manipulative. We're emotion. We can be emotionally abusive, and um, and you know, it's interesting. My relationship with alcohol. I think during that time when I was heavily using cocaine, I um, I didn't drink as much, which I is weird. I know a lot of people use it to drink a lot. Yeah, it's usually used to like continue drinking and stay up all night. So you yeah, can, don't I stop. just really <laughs> liked doing cocaine and drinking water. Wow. I think because probably whatever we were getting, to be quite honest, was probably cut with like some kind of baby laxative. Mm-hmm. So it was just drying me out too yeah. much. And I just like wanted to drink water. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't drink a lot during that time. And then uh, something happened in 2012. So I during this time, a um, couple back to back, like really bad relationships. And I had been involved with this guy um, who I met at a liquor store classy right actually cut <laughs> match I, made in heaven first I had met him 10 I forgot I had met him 10 months prior at a bar in Silver Lake and I was actually on a date with somebody else and I it's whatever I'm not gonna go in the story of how I met this guy became involved with this guy because honestly it's so bizarre but anyways I saw him at a liquor store I like purposely went into the liquor store while on a date with somebody else and um like you saw him go in. I saw him go oh, in, okay. and we were mo- we were going from a restaurant to a bar. Like we had had <laughs> dinner, and we were going to get drinks by my house because I wanted to be able to park near my house and then just like walk ho- home. Mm-hmm. You know, like I didn't want to drink and Being drive. Somewhat responsible. Somewhat responsible. I was definitely terrified of getting a DUI because my um, when I was nineteen, I came to visit Los Angeles in Calif- Southern California for the first time, and my cousins. My, one of my cousins lived here and she took me out one night with a group of her girlfriends and her girlfriend had gotten a DUI and it was like something like $10,000 or yeah, something. I got one you did. in college. And, and um, I never drank and drove after that again. It, it scared me. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I was um, 
you know, growing up in Michigan, we drank and drove all the time. I mean, we did a lot of shady stuff. Like we would cross the border into Canada because you only had to be 19 to drink. I would used to go with a fake ID. And like, actually, as a result, it's really interesting. I still, um, I don't know if it's like you would say I carry guilt and shame, but I still carry resentment for uh, any form of border patrol. So like in recovery, in sobriety, I have almost been detained two times coming back into the country just because I don't want to answer the border, like the customs questions. And I just, I just like fuck authority. I just, I, I am totally, I am very much like, I defy authority, yeah. fuck the police, whatever, <laughs> you know, like I'm so like, oh yeah. So I'm working on that. Um, uh, so anyway, so I got into this relationship and like, it took me many years after getting out of it to realize it, it was emotionally abusive and I was have I was, okay, so I met this guy, we were partying a lot, we were using cocaine a lot, um, we were drinking, it was really dysfunctional, it was very emotionally abusive. Also things like, my stuff on my end is like, I mean, I said things to him that like, I didn't know I had the capability of like, hating someone that much were you always under the influence when you said these things or most of the time but then it started to bleed into my real life and honestly I couldn't differentiate like like false from true like I did not know what was real and what was fake anymore mm -hmm. right and so um and that's actually something that's like in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous is like in the doctor's opinion actually which we read where it's like mm -hmm. at a certain point like an alcoholic does not cannot differentiate like the true from the false and um just everything is foggy in your mind everything yeah. is everything is irrational so I was I was also very verbally abusive and um uh so we were breaking up and getting back together all the time and I remember this one night I was at this bar in Echo Park it's called the shortstop Ooh, I love the shortstop it, it was a regular haunt for me and it was a Sunday night and I, I remember this because I worked freelance and my best friend at the time worked a nine to five and it was a it was um what's the holiday in May Memorial mm -hmm. it was Memorial Day weekend so whenever it was a three-day weekend we would always go on Sunday night because it's um like the best dance floor in town yeah, in my good. opinion yeah. you know they play have oldies. you been dancing there or have you gotten when you like since you've been sober to no. dance oh. no I haven't gone back because yeah. I mean this is like the scene of like a many a crime yeah you lots know? of memories yeah. dark dark memories yeah very dark memories and this is a, this is probably my darkest one um so I uh was there and I was starting to get drunk so I used cocaine to to control to control my drinking, right? Because it would sober me up and I liked how I felt better. I'm really like, I'm an uppers kind of gal. Like I really like things that pump the serotonin, which as you know, alcohol does not mm -hmm. do that, right? So I like things like cocaine and MDMA and you know, just anything that's gonna make me feel really, really good mm -hmm. temporarily. And um, at this point, my best friend had started dating a new guy. And so she was like, she was like my main codependent and like also my main like supplier. Right. And she was like not doing it anymore. Like she like wasn't using drugs anymore. And I felt really judged by her when I wanted her to like get some for me. And she would often say no, because she was like, if I get it for you, like I'll end up doing it too. And so I felt really powerless, but also like too chicken to like ever get my own drug dealer, mm -hmm. you know? So it was like this weird like manipulation dance. And I remember um, asking my friend to ask somebody who worked at the bar um, if he would go ask him to and buy some like 
coke off this guy for me or whatever and um he came back and he was like he doesn't have any and I was like that's a lie but whatever and I just got more and more and more upset and more and more drunk and so I finally I was like okay I need to take myself home like and this was before uber so cabs would wait outside the bar and um I got in a cab and I remember I sat down in the back seat and I was just bawling crying I just the second I sat down I told him where to go and then I just started like hysterically crying and I came back and I uh, lived in Los Feliz at the time and I came back to my apartment and I was just like heartbroken and like didn't know what was wrong with me and I knew something was wrong but I just couldn't I wasn't sure what it was and I remember I like group text like maybe four of my girl four or five of my girlfriends it was my girlfriend Cody who lived in New York she's like one of my oldest longest best friends um seen just some of the worst days for me and it was my friend uh who I had been at the bar with my old roommate and then two of our other like two other of our girlfriends in in um in that like group of friends and I said something I don't know because of course I in a shame spiral deleted the text later and in hindsight I wish I had them now because it would probably make me laugh really hard but I said something to the effect of like I need to go away or I need to like, I didn't say I needed to get help, but I think what I was trying to say was like, I honestly think what I was trying to say is I need to go to rehab, but Mm -hmm. I was like too scared to say the words out loud because it's like, that's admitting I had a problem. And so it sounded very ominous. And so I sent this text and then I shut my phone off and I get ready and I go to bed. And um, about an hour, hour and a half later, I wake up to two LAPD officers standing in my bedroom door and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I just, I had no reaction, oh. actually. How did they get in there? I had a sliding glass door. Oh. So they came in through a sliding glass door. Because she did, a, so one of my old roommate, uh, Rebecca, did a welfare check on me. Because she interpreted my text messages suicidal. Oh, oh, I see. So she does a welfare check on me. And I wake up to two police officers with their flashlights on me calling my name and I don't know how long they'd been there at that point I didn't know how they got in and that's the first thing I said to them I I open up my eyes I don't nothing like I don't sit up I don't jump up like I have no reaction I just open up my eyes and I go how did you guys get in here and the the, it was a male and a female officer and the male officer goes we came in through your sliding glass door and so I rolled over put my back to them and put the covers like up to my chin and I go can you guys just go out the way you came (laughs) like I just didn't I couldn't deal like I just did not want to deal with them being in my house yeah that's a lot to wake up to yeah and they kept saying like Rebecca called um she says she thinks you've hurt yourself blah 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 and then they were finally like let me see your hands and so I stuck my hands out of the covers and I was like see I'm fine like I don't know I don't know why they asked to see my hands maybe they they thought maybe I'd self-harmed you Mm. know um I was like see I'm fine and then they flipped on the bedroom light and they're like well our supervisor's coming and so you know one of my character defects is when I'm drinking I can become very charming so I can like I joke joke around about this now in sobriety I say like I can sell sand to a beach like I can talk my way out of anything oh because cut to actually I missed a really crucial part of the story which was before all this happened a couple years prior I was um I was committing fraud and I was stealing a lot of money from the state of California and um I got caught and so I so prior to the to the misunderstanding of the, sui- the 
not real suicide attempt, suicide attempt thing with the the cops and the welfare check. A few years prior to that, I, what really started so you me, had a record basically. Yeah, I well no because what happened was um, I was being summoned to court and I was really stressed out and my 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 good friend, my using buddy, she w- had just started going to therapy and she was like, I think you should see a therapist. Like I've told my therapist about you. I think you like talk about codependence. Like straight up was like, I, so I talked to my therapist about you. She really thinks you should go to therapy. Here's somebody's <laughs> name. And so I having no sense of self or identity or like understanding of who I am and like what I have to offer in this world. I was just like, okay. You know, so I go to this therapist and um, her name's Dina and thank God for her, this woman ended up getting me sober. And um, and so I went because I was going to court and I was in a lot of trouble and I was really stressed out and money and all this stuff. And I was going to owe like thousands and thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, she doesn't know this part. My therapist, former therapist, is, and I did not tell her this part. So I ended up going to court and I sat in like a conference room with a magistrate it was just he and I, and he wanted to know what happened. And I just turned on the, like, just very, like, doe-eyed, like, your honor. Like, I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I I thought, like, I was doing, like, I thought I was recording this right. Like, I just, I don't know. And, you know, and, and uh, he, in my opinion, turned a blind eye to me. And he, I was put on... 15 weeks of non-reporting probation but all the money i'd stolen i didn't have to pay a penny back wow till i got sober and my first sponsor was like guess what you have to pay all that money back um which i'm still doing to this day um so i um so you basically talked yourself out of that situation that first time yes and so cut to i'm we're the cops 2012. are in your bedroom. The cops are in my bedroom. <laughs> They're telling me their supervisor's coming. They want to know why Rebecca would call them and say I was going to hurt myself. And I I don't know if Becky knows this part, but um, I said to them, sorry if you ever listened to this, Becky. I said to them, I don't know. She's an actress. She's really dramatic is like <gasps> the reason I gave them. It's Becky's fault. It's basically. Becky's <laughs> fault, right? Like not my fault, nothing. Um. So I, so I turned my phone back on and I was like, let's call her like to the cops. I was like, let's give her a call. Let's find out why she called. And I don't know why they indulged me. And also at the time I had an Ativan prescription. I had lied to my primary care physician and gotten out of van prescription because when you do as much cocaine and MDMA as I was doing at the time, you needed something to go to sleep, which is very dangerous by the way. Yeah. Like you could easily stop your heart. I actually knew a, a woman who ended up dying that way. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. She had would done too much Molly and cocaine, and she had Xanax in her system. Is really sad story. And she died on a boat in the marina because nobody took her to the hospital. But that's what happens when you descend into drugs and alcohol. It's like when you take something to get really, really high and up, and then you have to take something to come down really, really hard. Like, yeah, it's your But also you, you are surrounded by people who are more concerned with their partying than taking you to the hospital. Because she yeah. wasn't alone when she died. Because they don't want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. They're worried of what's going to And it's a really sad story. You know, they kept her on life support because her family, she also happened to be from Michigan. We didn't know each other there. We knew each other out here. And, and uh, they kept her on life support so her family could fly out and, and essentially say goodbye mm. you know yeah. which that when when dre passed like that um i remember thinking like that that easily could be me i do that same cocktail mm-hmm. you know and um 
And so we we call Becky and Rebecca and um, she answers the phone. I immediately, I start screaming at the top of my lungs to the point where I'm just like, I, and all she's saying to me, oh, is, it kills me every time is she just says like, I don't care if you never talk to me again. Like, I'm just so glad you're okay. Oh, that's a good friend. Yeah. Yeah. Really good friend. And so I was, and as soon as she said that, I was like, I can't talk to you anymore. And so I put, I gave the phone to the cop. And so at the time I had a, an out of end prescription and I had a, my boss, my, my very demanding boss had given me some of her Ativan, right? Cause like I'm, I'm an addict. Like I'm not gonna, you want to give me some of your drugs? Great. That means I can, st- I'm like a squirrel. I'll stash mine and use yours. Like, yeah. like also during like my heavy cocaine using years, it was like, I un- unbeknownst to me lived above a, a cocaine dealer. Right. And so, and we were in West Hollywood and I would come home and there'd be all these um, they were both of the men who lived there. They weren't in a relationship, but they were both gay. And so there would always be like this really fun dance party with all these gay men there. So I felt really safe mm-hmm. and I would come down and, and, and I would hang out with them all Friday night, well in a Saturday morning. And they were just, in my opinion, such gentlemen, they never made me pay for anything. They always gave me drugs. Like yeah. Yeah, I had a great, t- it was a great time. Like yeah, I had so much like fun. You were always just like making connections and meeting people that had it. And yeah. it was just easy to get. It was, it was yeah. really easy for me. I didn't, ever really do anything weird or shady or um or shameful just sort of the way I behaved and treated people is what was shameful for me the emotional terror like I remember once a guy broke up with me and was like you're like a tornado that tears through people's lives and I was very offended by that at the time naturally you know it's not not a compliment yeah no it was (laughs) not um but I now in hindsight could see how he could say that you know and so um so back to the cop story when they were there were you on anything were you drunk I had been well and that's so so yes so we get off the phone with Rebecca and he looks at me and he goes Two things were happening. One, the female officer who's never said a word is eyeing a, a Ziploc baggie full of Ativan. And she's not saying anything, but I keep watching her looking at the baggie, looking back at me. And she's not, for whatever reason, she's not saying anything to the to the male officer who, who seemed to be in charge of the quote-unquote scene. Mm. Um, so finally he goes, are you intoxicated? And I looked at him and I go, probably like I had just been out all night you know like I'd only been asleep for an hour so I was like yeah technically speaking I'm probably still drunk you yeah. know and and then so then the supervisor showed up and I remember she's this little uh woman and she had her like typical cop tight pulled back bun and she was really sweet I have to say and so she comes in and she's like what's going on and and so now I'm like okay I gotta get out of this right because like in, in, it's interesting, like, I remember in that moment really wanting to be taken in. Like, I wanted a break from my life. Like, it was out of control mm-hmm. what I was doing. I was so overwhelmed and so overworked and partying all the time that, like, a three-day hospital stay sounded nice, but my ego was like, you can't go in on a 5150. No one will ever talk to you again, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, so, and I had to go to work. Mm, yeah you know I had you don't to, want them to I didn't want to I didn't want them I didn't want to lose my job with this yeah. person who even though it was kind of a nightmare situation was I was making a lot of money at a very young age thanks to her you know yeah. and um 
so I was, I was used to a certain lifestyle. And so, um, the supervisor comes in and finally, I'm just like, I just turn it on like the same way I did with the judge. And I was just like, you know, I was like, I'm so sorry. You guys had to come down here. Like, I'm fine. Like I am not suicidal. They can't legally take you in unless you've actually hurt yourself. Like you've actually like self-harmed or you say, I'm good. I think I'm going to hurt myself. Right. So I'm like, I'm, I'm so sorry. It was a misunderstanding. Like, I probably was like, my friends are assholes, you know, like I just, I was really wanted it to be everybody else's fault. And so that I walk them out to through the sliding glass door. And she just, I remember the last thing she turns and says to me, she says, you really need to get the sliding glass door fixed. Anybody could just get in here. (laughs) They have to end with something, something, right? Some life lesson or something. I'm like, bye, you know, and I, um, so now I'm, my best friend won't speak to me. Um, my best friend in New York is like, that was so fucked up. I cannot believe I had to wake up to all these text messages. Um, cause what had happened was, oh, and also the big thing, my big thing with Becky, my big grievance with her was, I was like, if you were so worried about you, why didn't you come to my house? Yeah. Cause when he first said that she was doing like a wellness check, I thought you were saying that she was coming, but so she had actually been the one that called the police yeah. to come. Yeah. And it's like, my arrogance was like, why would your friend who also, she was a, a bartender. She didn't like nothing like weird. Like she drank on the job, nothing like that, but she had worked all night till two in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then my thought was like, she should have been the one to come check on me, which first of all, she had no way of getting into my home. Yeah. Right. So it's like, but my little brain was so twisted that I was like, these people, like, why are they doing this to me? You know, like, very victimized by the right. whole Right, oh, thing. I see, yeah, yeah. So nobody was talking to me except my friend Rachel. Would, she spoke to me the next morning. Rachel is just one of the most tolerant, kind, compassionate people I know. And um, and then my friend Kristen. Oh, I think my, old, my other old roommate, Brittany, who she ended up coming over and hanging out with me because she felt really sorry for me. She was sort of like, why are they being so mean to you? Clearly, like, you are down for the count. You need, you know, you need to be around people right now. So she came and hung with me. And then I hung out with uh, my friend, my longtime friend, Kristen, and mentor. And she eventually actually became my agent for, like, a very br- brief um, period in time, many years later after I got sober. Um, and so that happened. And that was that was the biggest uh, wake up call for me. I actually, um, I had a friend who he had been out with me one night and I was like, no, I want to go to the vodka room in this bar. And so we went and he actually ended up getting a DUI that night. And look, right. Like I certainly, um, it's not my fault. I didn't put the alcohol to his mouth, but I didn't help. Right. Like I was like not backing down. Like I had no consideration for the yeah. fact that he was driving us. Right. Yeah. But he should have not been driving. But Probably still. not. But you know, I wasn't like, I was just like, I get, I, when I am in that zone, that obsessive zone, it's like, I want what I want and I don't care who I will take you to the edge mm-hmm. and then you'll get arrested. And I'm like, that's weird. How did we get here? Yeah. I, I don't I, want to take I would responsibility. Do that exactly. Yeah. The exact same thing too. And then when people would be like, I got to go home. This is enough. I would just keep on do- going mm-hmm. on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we'll stop at nothing. Yeah, you know, exactly. it's like, what did they say? It's like, uh, the first drink is too many and a thousand is not enough, yeah. you know? No so, end, so there's no end in sight. Right. So he had been to some court ordered AA meetings. So I, uh, I reached out to him after the cops, had been in my house and also scheduled an appointment with my therapist for ASAP, right? I had not been in therapy during this time. Mm-hmm. So um, 
he was like, just go and check it out. And I was like, well, I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic. And he was like, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything. Um, and I remember years later after I got sober, I was clearing out an old email. And around that time, all I got, I got a no subject line email. And, and it had just like times and addresses for AA meetings that he had sent me. And then I went to my therapist. I told her what happened. And she just really calmly was like, Jill, you have a problem with drugs and alcohol. And I was like, okay, I'm listening, you know. And she's like, you know, you need to go to AA. And I was like, well, um, the first thing I said to her was like, I don't want to share in front of men. And she's like, well, they have women's meetings. And I was like, well, I don't believe in God. And she's like, well, they have agnostic meetings. And then finally I was like, well, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And <laughs> like it's going through all the excuses. Yeah. And then she goes, okay. You know, because right, if you're, if you're like, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, A is not going to work. Yeah. You have to. You that have is to step be- one. <laughs> yeah. You have to believe like, okay, this is where I belong. So I coasted along for a few more years doing like what uh, I would consider like very controlled drinking. I was only allowed to have, I would only allow myself two drinks when I was out, I was like, well, drugs are clearly the problem because this whole thing started because so I stopped using any drugs. Mm. And that went on like that for about a couple years. And like, you know, I managed, I still stayed in and out of this really, really abusive relationship. So my self-esteem and my self-worth was pretty low. I, um, at the time, my brother ended up in rehab. My brother ended up in rehab two times about the year bef- about a year before I got sober. And so... I was having a really difficult relationship with my pa- my parents and my family. I didn't uh, really approve of how they were hand- my parents were handling my brother's situation, and um, and mostly I was just scared for him, and I didn't also selfishly want to feel the pain of like potentially losing him to drug overdose, right? Because mm-hmm. in my mind, we weren't the same yet because the drugs he chose. Uh, they can kill you if you just use too much, right? Oh, okay. And so for me, I was like, well, cocaine can't really kill you. I mean, I guess you can use too much and like have a heart attack or do a, a bad combo of a, a real up and down. And, you know, I had I yeah. had a couple scary the experiences. The OD was, probably yeah. was more common in the drugs that he was using. Exactly, yeah. right? And so um, that brought up a lot of fear for me. And in that time, I wasn't speaking to my parents and I was really horrible to my mom. I basically one day called her up and told her, every single resentment I ever had against her. And um, that is something I feel really bad about. And, you know, in years earlier, years years before the cops had happened, I remember once, I must have been about 24. Well, first when I was 23, my aunt called up my mom one day and said, I think Jill has a drinking problem. All her pictures on Facebook are of her drinking. Mm-hmm. And so my mom called to tell me that. And I was like, my aunt needs to mind her own business, basically, is what I said to that. And then about a year after that, my mom, I remember I was home visiting. It might have been Christmas time, holiday time. And she just turned to me one day in the car. And she, it was just the two of us. And she looked at me and she goes, are you on drugs? And I, I mean, like any good addict, right, just like tore her to shreds for asking me that. You know, that's one of the gifts of recovery is that I literally never have to look my mother in the face and lie to her again Yeah, about being on drugs, you know. And so um, I went on for a few more years and uh, like two more years. And then uh, like maybe four or five months before I got sober, I started uh, using. So you were able to control it? I controlled it for almost two years. Wow. Like I would say like maybe a year and a half, year and 
here in nine months, something like that, you know, like did, really did, controlled did you drinking. put like very strict rules in place? Like, yes. Because that's, yeah, yes. that's the only way I could imagine that. Really, way. really strict rules. I was only allowed to have two drinks when I went out. I didn't drink at home. I didn't touch drugs. I um, uh, would try and take cash only. And when the cash was out, I would stop drinking. I would go home. But like I would go home sobbing in mm-hmm. hysterics because like I kept wanting to drink or or I would put these rules in place and then I would fail at them miserably so it, it wasn't always controlled drinking. it wasn't yeah. always controlled drinking but it was certainly like it was less out of control than mm-hmm. it had been and I th- and I really put a pat on gold star on m- me pat on the back because I was like I'm not using drugs I associated all my problems with drugs I never realized that my story begins and ends with alcohol during this time mm-hmm. right and alcohol was the through line for everything for me alcohol turns me into a different person it has a total Jekyll and Hyde effect on me and um and I I remember once being at the shortstop and different night and my friend looked at me and she said uh she's like it's like you're not here she's like it's like your soul's gone she's like you're here in the physical form but you're dead behind Mm. the eyes wow and um so I turned into a completely different person when I drink alcohol and so um I was doing the best I could at the time and I was growing more and more miserable. And then I remember it was January of 2014 and I was at my friend Rachel's 30th birthday party at little joy. And we did some Coke in the bathroom. And I remember having this split second, like she, we did it and she walked out and I went to the bathroom. I'm sorry to the sink to wash my hands. I remember looking in the mirror and being like, God damn it. You know, like, fuck here you are again and then like but then like the coke hits and I'm like oh well you know and I'm like out the (laughs) bar like blah 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 blah. and like we went to the short stop after because it's in walking distance and we drank more and we did more uh I started drinking heavily again and I started hanging out with like a group of girlfriends and we just like basically partied and I wasn't really interested in working all that much and um you know I was I was working just enough to like you know and that's the thing that was confusing for me was like I always had a car I always had a career I always had a roof over my head functioning high high functioning but like also kind of a dark bottom you know Mm -hmm. like it wasn't just like I woke up one day and was like I can't do this anymore it was like many many years of like being in severe denial Mm -hmm. you know and so um, I was in a lot of credit card debt I racked up a lot of credit card debt that was very stressful still cleaning up that Mm -hmm. that wreckage that's gonna take however long however long it takes right like it's one of those things I just don't think about I just am like in acceptance of it because you know it's part of my story um financial demise was a very big part of my story and so um I'm partying all the time I'm uh you know just my self-worth in the toilet and I start using drugs a lot again just a lot a lot a lot a lot and um and so it was uh July 3rd, 2014, it's about six weeks before I got sober, I was out at Los Globos and... Um, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, right. It's, a, it's like a bar club in it's LA. It's so odd. But you know, it's like for sure drugs are everywhere there. Everywhere. So <laughs> there was a guy dealing MDMA on the back patio. And I remember I really wanted Coke because we were, we had, this was like one, like our third stop maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had been drinking, right? Without any cocaine. And like, I'm just like 
I just can't. I actually, I can't hold my liquor for shit, to be completely honest. I throw up. I'm sloppy. Like, oh, wow. I don't black out, but I am, I can't hold. That's why I like drugs, because oh. I cannot hold my liquor. Okay. But, so, I, um, we're at Los Globos. They get, they, they tell me to give them $20, and I get a big pill of Molly. And um, Molly is a powder. It's in a capsule. It's not pressed. That's technically ecstasy, which I've done like maybe once. I mm-hmm. usually did Molly because drug addicts say it's uh, cleaner, which yeah. is bullshit. It's total right. fucking bullshit, but whatever. Um, it's uh, whatever. So, um, and I remember thinking, I don't want to do this, but. Uh, what I really want to do is Coke. So I, th- I at first thought, well, maybe I'll ask for a refund. And then I was like, no, no, that's silly. Like, <laughs> this isn't Target. Yeah, I was like, I don't think drug dealers give refunds. You know, yeah. like I think you'd be like, go fuck yourself, kid. And so I, although I was 29 years old at the time, I was not a kid anymore. And so I put it in my purse and I was like, you know, I'll save this for later. And within 30 seconds of me setting the pill in my purse, I had convinced myself that all my friends were high and I didn't want to be left out. And so I grabbed the pill and because they were high, I was like, I must catch up with them. So instead of just swallowing it, I dumped it all out onto my hand. They snorted it, which Ooh. I don't know if you've ever snorted Molly. It's very painful I experience. I snorted it, Molly, no. Yeah. And so also um, in this instance, I ended up having an out-of-body experience and I hate hallucinogenics. I hate them with a passion. Like I've done mushroom a handful of times and it's been the worst day of my life every single time. I hate them with a passion. So I... Um, start having this out-of-body experience. So I'm, because it burns so bad when you snort Molly, I had tears just streaming down my face. So I'm crying and um, I'm thinking I'm hallucinating. So I'm starting to panic because I don't know what I've just taken because I, I was like in my head, like I swear they told me this was Molly, but why am I? So it was like basically mm. like my body, came, I came up out of my body and all of the sensations and sounds were super loud and, and, and just... I mean, it was it was an out of body experience, and um, I turned to my friend Kristen and my friend Jamal, and I was like, "What did you guys give me? What?" And I just kept saying, "What did you give me? What did you give me? What did you give me?" I'm like freaking out. So Kristen leads me out by my hands to the back patio to get some fresh air, and as soon as I got in the fresh air, the sound wasn't as loud. I came, I dropped back into my body, and I was just happy, high on Molly. But that lasted maybe 20 minutes, right? Which that's not normal for Molly. It usually lasts a couple a hours. A while, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is the day that dr- the drug stopped working, right? Dr- alcohol had stopped working years prior, but I didn't really care because alcohol was socially acceptable and it was also so- socially acceptable to drink alcohol while doing the drugs that I like to do, right? Mm. So um, I... Um, so what ends up happening is we hear about an after hours party downtown and we leave with this guy and his friend and it's me, Kristen and Jamal. And we get in this car. Which one I used to love after hours. <laughs> you know, I honestly don't um, remember. It wasn't like the overpass. Or I used anything. to go to one in like a Chinese restaurant. A <laughs> they, like, once it closed, they turned it into oh, an after or the Thai restaurant, the Thai restaurant. Yeah, yeah. 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 With, and they would serve red wine in the little teacups. They this one over would in Los Feliz, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This one and would they would do karaoke. Yeah, with yeah, the yeah. drag queens. I didn't know they had wine. I would just they had beer, and since you know you can't serve alcohol after two, you had to say like a code word. Like I forgot what it was, and then that way 
they would serve you the beer. But it was kind of stupid because everyone knew the code word and we're, you know, everyone's ordering yeah, and yeah. drinking. But yeah, that might have been a little after my time when I used to go there. They would only serve you red wine in teacups. Oh, that's more classic. I don't know. I don't know. Was it? Because I was drinking like, like shitty you know, Coors Light or it something. It was shitty like red wine, <laughs> I'll tell you that much. I mean, it was super fun, but um yeah, it's over there on Vermont. We probably shouldn't yeah, say yeah. the name. I don't want to. No, I think trouble. it's actually closed now. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. But I don't even remember. Those were fun times actually. I had a good time there. I used to love after hours places. So, we go to this I used to go to these like spots downtown all the time, like whatever, I guess you could say a rave, you know. We get to this party and it's really close uh, uh, small and it's hot and people are dancing and the techno music's going and I'm sitting there talking with Kristen and I'm like not high and I'm like it's like now 3 a.m. at this point and I'm like I've got I've got to get out of here like I just everything fiber in my body was like I have got to get out of here and so because um, I'm like what is happening like why am I not high like yeah and it's it, not somewhere you want to be when you're sober or you know when you're getting to that sober place and it's like fucked up when you're at a hours place yeah so i'm freaking out so i just i look at her and i'm just like we're mid-conversation i'm like you know i gotta go Mm -hmm. so i like step outside now uber exists at this point and so i call an uber Uber. (laughs) we've transitioned to uber i spent a lot of money on uber because back in the day they used to only be black cars do you remember when they were only black cars uh i don't remember black i remember before the pool existed then when it before was just uber x existed it was town cars that picked oh you up oh my gosh it was very fancy wow. i was getting dropped off at like uh what's that uh bar right there that like venue right next to the tropical like some shitty little oh, bar lake lounge. yeah i'm getting yeah. like dropped off at the silver lake lounge in like a fucking <laughs> town car it's like, you know? it's like so ridiculous but i was very over the top and uh, extravagant and i just i really enjoyed it um as i'm standing outside waiting for this uber driver to come get me this is like in kind of important detail of my using because um it actually is the thing that helped me sort of later on in my life believe in something greater than myself and it's so minute and it's kind of shallow but um I stood outside I don't think I used the word god but I think I was kind of like whatever's out there like universe whatever's listening like I just all I wanted in that moment because I was freaking out was that I just didn't want the uber driver to be talkative Mm, I just couldn't think of anything worse and so the car pulls up it's a it was a little SUV and I get in the back and he turns around and he has his phone and on it says I'm deaf can you please just put your address into the GPS (laughs) and I was like there is a god you know like I was literally like everything like I became like relaxed or whatever Mm. and so um you know we he gets me home and then um I, you know, so then whatever it's, then it's six more weeks of some partying and drinking and what ended up happening, how I ended up getting sober was I, um, the week I got sober, it was Echo Park Rising. The week, the day, the weekend I got sober was Echo Park Rising, which is a music festival here in, in Los Angeles. And, um, it's really fun. It's, you kind of just like hop around from bar to bar. And at, at that time in my life, a lot of my friends were local musicians who played in local bands. And, um, I was back on my my two drink maximum bullshit, <laughs> right? You know, like I was like thinking I could control this. And I brought cash and I had like maybe enough to, I had enough to, to buy two drinks and like leave a tip because I'm not a cheapskate, you know? <laughs> and um, and so I, I blew through the cash and my friend's band was playing and she had a drink ticket. And so I stole them and was drinking shitty well whiskey. And um, 
you know, it was very anticlimactic. I had earlier in the week had had, uh, caused a huge fight with my best friend. Um, I misunderstood something she said and I took it really personally. I, I take everything really personally, even in sobriety. It's a big thing I've had to work on. And that night, what actually ended up happening, oddly enough, was I wasn't being mean. I actually was being loving and very kind and telling her like, we can like, you know, like our friendship was like on the rocks, you know, at this point because of my drinking and using. A lot of people like didn't want to stick around. I didn't have a lot of people close to me at this point, you know. I had a couple people close to me, but that was it. And um, our friendship was really, it was taking a toll all the years of, of my drinking and using. And um, I was a very kind, so I sent her a very kind text message. And actually, I woke up in the morning and I felt ashamed because I was not honest with her. Like, I didn't want to save the friendship. I didn't want to continue on in the friendship. I felt so shameful. And, like, there had been plenty of times I had woken up. You know, like I said, I wasn't a blackout drinker, so I remembered every single mean thing I ever said or did. Mm. Um, And so there was many mornings where I was woken up by the shame spiral, you know, just, like, just spiraling up the anxiety. And the only thing that could stop it was, like, going and getting another drink, you know? And, um... So I had this really odd experience and I woke up and I uh, was feeling really ashamed and it was actually um, August 17th and I had no one left who would answer the phone and I called my old therapist. She had since moved up to Oakland and she was coming down to LA once a month and so I was seeing her but we weren't considering it therapy because I was only seeing her once a month it was like maintenance and Mm -hmm. she was very kind and giving and always said you know you can call me anytime just shoot me a text we can have a quick little chat and uh I uh I said I sent her name was Dina and I sent her a text I said Dina I, I really need to talk to you you know do you have a few minutes and she said you know I'll call you and so she called me and I told her what happened and just really calmly, like she had said many years prior, like, Jill, you have a problem with drugs and alcohol. And I was like, you're right. And like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. When you admitted it? Mm -hmm. When I said, you're right. And, um, and she was like, you know, you need to get to an AA meeting. And I was like, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was instantly was like, I don't know about that. So, um, and I was like, well, I would like to get back into regular therapy with a therapist I can see once a week. And she's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll send you some names. And I was like, so what do I do about my friend? You know, like I was like, let's, can we fix this problem? And so she, she gave me something to say. I basically was like, I'm really sorry for what I said last night. Like, you know, I have a huge problem with drugs and alcohol and I, I really need to like get some help and, and, and deal with that. And, um, that friend never responded to oh, that. Wow. And I, you know, I, th- I think that was the best thing she could have done for me because it, it hurt me, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, having her in my life, I don't know if I would have been able to, to get and stay sober. Oh, wow. Honestly. You know, not because I think she would have been interfering, but our relationship was just so codependent mm-hmm. and so... It was toxic. Toxic. Yeah. It was deeply, deeply toxic relationship. And I just... I just don't know if it would if it would have happened for me. Mm-hmm. So, um... So that is that's what happened, and then I that's that's kind of crazy because I the other day we were talking about how I realized we both got sober at twenty nine. Mm-hmm. We are both Scorpios. We are, and both of us are a therapist played a huge role yeah. in in us getting sober because in my case my therapist suggested that I go to treatment and rehab, which I did, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's so funny that yeah. therapy really does work. It and really does work. My reaction was the same thing t- as yours was to her recommending AA. 
um, when she recommended treatment, I was like, whoa, that seems like that's that unnecessary. Seems that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, oh, no, that's actually what I need. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, um, I spent about eight weeks in therapy arguing every week with her about why I didn't want to go to AA and why I didn't want to work the steps. Right. And, um, my big thing was I never wanted to make amends. I was deeply against the ninth step which is the step where you, you make your amends. Mm -hmm. And I was also deeply against God at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, finally one day she just says to me, she looks at me and she says, don't you think everyone in the world could benefit from doing the 12 steps? Like when you really read what they're about, like just taking a self inventory, relying on something greater than yourself, relinquishing control in the illusion of control. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, R- r- making wrongs right and right. just you yeah. know being a kind it's just person being a better person mm-hmm. yeah anyone can benefit from that especially yeah especially alcoholics <laughs> especially alcoholics and their loved ones and yeah. there's all sorts of other 12-step programs that exist for all sorts of things right and so um so I was like, all right, you got me. Mm. So I, my first therapist had had this acronym, which was uh, fear, fuck everything and run, or the other acronym was face everything and receive. And so I found a women's meeting, right? Because I told you I didn't want to ever share in front of men. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a women's meeting in my neighborhood that I could walk to. It was this women's meeting. It's It still exists. It's on Monday nights. It's since moved. It's no longer like, in, well, I've moved to, but it was it moved from that location and it was called language of the heart and i went and uh they went around the room and everyone said like hi you know my name is jill and i'm an alcoholic and um uh and so i would only say my first name and i remember i a lot of people say they come to aa and they go to their first meeting and they're like hit with like the sunlight of the spirit and like they never want to drink again I didn't want to drink again however I was not necessarily hit with spirituality what I heard was women standing up and celebrating their birthday which you know as I don't know if you've explained yet what a birthday is no it's so it's 365 consecutive days of not drinking exactly nailed it (laughs) and um I passed (laughs) these women were in 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 southern california we have a tradition when you get a cake we call it your birthday and you uh your friends give it to you it's it's really nice we actually sing happy birthday and then you say a little something about like where you're at in your recovery and all i heard was if i do this for a year i can stand in front of a room full of people (laughs) and talk about myself (laughs) So that's what kept me coming back because I wanted to do that because I was pretty self-obsessed. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I sort of like would pop in and out, pop in and out. Wasn't really digging it. I, a friend of a friend was taking me to meetings and she was really sweet. But um, uh, so it was Thanksgiving of 2014 and I was at my friend's house and they were all doing drugs. And these are people who were not sober and they were drinking and doing drugs and and I remember sitting there thinking like if it just came to me out of nowhere and I was like if I don't get a sponsor and work the steps like I'm gonna start drinking again and Um, mind you at this point I had like gone to Vegas with 20 days sober and didn't drink and like the whole thing very fancy bottle service 
walking through the kitchen, DJ, like, like the way I like to party, right? Yeah, Which yeah. is like VIP. And you didn't drink. And I didn't drink. Yeah. And I just stood there and holding a Fiji water bottle the entire time while like people around me just got like drunker and drunker and drunker. And, um, and, um, so I did believe I could control and manage it. And another interesting thing happened right around two weeks, uh, sober. I called my brother, my, I have three brothers and my middle brother, Brian, I'm, I'm very close with. And, um, and I was very close with him at this time. And we had trauma bonded over my other brother being in therapy. You know, mm -hmm. it brought us together. Um, and I called him up one day. I remember I was, I was uh, at work and I was stopping and getting a coffee. And I said, it's the strangest thing, Brian. I said, ever since I stopped drinking, like, I don't have that hole inside mm -hmm. me anymore. I said, I felt like I had a black hole and I was just going to, like, fall into it and never be able to get out, like, yeah. inside me, you know. And, um... You know, in AA, it's commonly referred to as the God-sized hole. But, you know, I know that word turns a lot of people off. It's a word I use because I know what it means to me. And it's short. It's easy to say. Yeah, because we should mention, a yeah, there's not a lot of people in AA don't necessarily believe in God. Their Correct. higher power Correct. many different things. Many different things. It could be like the universe or mm -hmm. the moon or mm -hmm. like it could be a stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever you want it exactly. to be. So. so, you know, I got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous. I worked the steps. I worked with a sponsor. I still have a sponsor to this day. I'm still working the steps. It's a, it's an evolutionary, like it's a sick, cyclical process where you don't stop mm -hmm. um much to my demise uh, I was not happy about that at first but I've since learned to love and appreciate the program for everything it's offered me and honestly like for me today you know it's like it has given me a foundation has given me a design for living it, it's given me tools to function in a world where I don't know where I fit in or how to how to handle things or you know not self-medicate with mm -hmm. drugs or alcohol or pills or you know whatever and um you know the reason why we're sitting here doing this right now you know is like honestly for me the biggest gift I've gotten is being able to work with other women in in take them through the 12 steps you know it's mm -hmm. you can't we say like you can't keep what you don't give away right so like the whole premise of the 12 step is like to our primary purpose is to stay sober and help another alcoholic you know and I've worked with many many women over the years and not all of them have stayed sober and you know uh they come back they go out they some stay some I met a woman my first sponsee her name is Kylie she was two weeks in treatment and she's been my sponsee ever since mm. you know I've known her for two and a half years now and watched her grow and 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 it, what working with other women has done is one, it gives me a gauge on my own growth, which is actually really helpful because I'm kind of the last to know about my growth. And then two, it helps me pra continue practicing these principles in all my affairs because what happens is you'll call me with something and uh, you'll remind me, easy does it, slow down, take it one day at a time, mm -hmm. you know, let, like impatience will get you nowhere, you know, like those things that we talk about are all things that I need to hear too, you know, like... As much as I love having a sponsor and working the steps, it's been working with other women that has like honestly changed and saved my life because I would have gone out by now if I didn't work with other women. That is yeah. what keeps me sober. I think that's like such an important part of AA is the fellowship and the community and I uh, not being alone through this and a part of 
that is helping each other. So yeah. that's, I think that really, I mean, connectivity, human connection is yeah. everything for an alcoholic because you feel so isolated and so alone. And I felt so scared and like, I didn't fit in. I didn't have a place in this world. I didn't, mm-hmm. I felt like I had to take care of everything on my own all the time. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, sobriety has given me is an opportunity to breathe and pause and like really truly f- believe that I am not in control and it's better mm-hmm. that I'm not in control because when I'm in control I drive my life into the ground I'm yeah. a horrible friend I'm a horrible girlfriend I'm a horrible daughter I'm a horrible sister I'm I I was pretty good at my job I'm not gonna lie but I'm sure in a lot of ways I am much better to work with right. now you know like I was always talented but I think my emotional state you know I was very up and down and all over the place and you know yeah that's um so we were talking about how like connectivity is a huge part of this and I think not only that, but genuine connections I've noticed in my life have just developed. And that's just been really rewarding. It's because I had a lot of superficial friendships. Um, You know, I was checked out a lot and just the friendship revolved around alcohol. And so it's just been so awesome to have real connections and conversations with people. That's been really rewarding for me. Yeah, same. I, that's, I mean, I think about the women I got sober with who I'm still, we're all still sober, which is a freaking miracle. Mm. Like, and you know, we've done every life thing you could Mm. like, and every life experience. Yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, we're talking like birth, death, marriage, breakups, miscarriages, moving. I'm really afraid of that because so far in my sobriety, it's been, really great if anything I've just I have way more oh with AA it's been really great I have more like flow in my life and everything Mm -hmm. is just better but I do fear the the moment because I know it's going to happen because I'm only a month into AA it's going to come up where something really difficult is going to happen like a death or something and I'm just I'm nervous as to how I'm going to react to that you know I mean what I'll say is like uh drinking wanting the desire to drink sneaks up on me in the the oddest times and um I think some of my more difficult experiences uh I actually am it's easier for me to to hold on to grace and humility and and uh and walk through things really gracefully and it's it's sort of like it was like when I I was five months sober and I found out that really bad boyfriend I had had a new girlfriend and that made me want to drink you know but then like uh two months ago I got diagnosed with chronic Lyme's disease and drinking is literally the furthest thing from my mind and this is a it's a big deal it's a huge challenge in my recovery um dealing with a, a different type of chronic illness you know in in the AA recovery world, we consider alcoholism a chronic illness. And so, you know, because of my foundation here, when I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme's disease and um, I just, I had a, I feel actually so grateful to have this diagnosis because it really forced me to look at some things about myself, like how much anger I was holding on to, how much resentment I was holding on to, how much judgment of others I was holding on to, judgment of myself. Like, mm-hmm. where was my self-love? Like, it it dove me into a spiritual path that is so deep. And look, I do not wish anyone ill to get, to be able to get what I am needing to get out of my spiritual life. However, I do hope that everybody who has a desire to get and stay sober has some opportunity in their life to really like see how they grow from adversity, right? Because pain is this touchstone of spiritual growth. So 
if you're coasting along and things are fine, like, yeah, you're still going to get spiritual growth. I had several years of recovery. My first few years were fine. Nothing happened. And I still grew spiritually, but I'm in a place like right now where it's just my spiritual life. It's my spiritual practice. It's, it's everything. It's so, it's so important to me. So if you are basically saying like, if you are able or if you do stay sober through hard times and trials, that there's even more growth to come because of that. Basically. I believe that. Yeah. And that's yeah, been that my experience, sense. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, look, that doesn't sit, that doesn't mean that somebody who goes through a tough experience and then chooses to drink over it, that they're flawed. It just means that that's part of their path yeah. and that's part of their story. And that's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I also have no guarantees that the next hard thing won't take me out. Right. right? Cause I get one day at a time. It's a daily reprieve. And like, Yesterday's shower won't keep you clean today. So it's like I have to continue doing all the tools that I I've learned. I do need to shower. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. I do kind of smell. Um, so one thing I want to ask you about sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So that's basically, like you said, one person, usually the same gender. So like one woman taking another woman through the 12 steps of AA, um, which is what you and I are doing. And... Um, when I asked you to be my sponsor, you had a couple, I guess, rules <laughs> um, that I had to call you every day mm-hmm. and I had to do 90 meetings in 90 days. Mm-hmm. So I I mean, I kind of understand why, but is there a deeper, more specific reason for that? Well, okay. So one, actually technically is everything a suggestion, Oh, but, but <laughs> it's really helpful to take your sponsor's suggestions because one, when I was sponsored by my first sponsor. I was asked to do the same thing and it wor- I know it works, right? So all I have to lend you is my experience and what I know works, right? So the reason why I uh, asked you to do that is because one, when shit gets tough, you're going to pick up the phone and call me, mm-hmm. right? Like because you're in the habit of calling me every day just to check in about the minute details. And you've already done this. You've already had a tough day yeah. and called twice. Even before you were my sponsor, I had a you tough would. day and I called you, you would. and I didn't drink. And then also though we say like ni- the reason 90 and 90 is because that is how you become, that has been my experience. That is how I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is I did 90 and, I probably did 82 out of 90, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. I did not do a perfect 90 and 90. It's hard to do. It's I, tough. I, I think I've missed two days. Yeah, out of and, the last and that's okay. It's almost 30, but... Uh. That's okay. You know, like, it's okay. Like, I'm not hardcore. But like, I'm yeah. not going to be like, you have to start your 90 and 90 over. Some people are, are very <laughs> oh hardcore. God. But like no, that. because I'm doing that, that pushes me on the days where I'm, like, feeling a little tired, where I'm like, oh, I could just go home and watch some TV. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I need to go do this. And it pushes me to go to the meeting. And, of course, every single time, I'm glad that I did. So the the times where I haven't made it that day, it's like I, I've called you up. I've actually called you, like, in tears once because I did everything I could to make it to mm-hmm. a meeting that day. And just, like, circumstances beyond my control just it did not work out. Just I could not get to a meeting on time. But I did. I like would show up. I walked into a room and it was completely full because I was late and I, I left because there's nowhere to sit. So it's like I did everything I could. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I would even like you know we talked about this, which was I would encourage you next time to to stay oh, even so when you have to stand in a room of like a hundred people. Me just stand the only one standing. But whatever. But you know what? Sober. But it will keep you sober and it might keep the person who has eight and a half months. And they're looking at you being like, wow, she's so committed. She's standing for an hour, for an hour. She really wants to be here. Maybe I can come back tomorrow. 
Yeah. Because that's what we do for each other. Just there's so many people that just because they stuck their hand out to me or talked to me or said hello to me, like they helped make me feel a part of because that's what I suffer from. I feel different and separate then. Mm. Not all the time anymore, but back then, especially and when I was drinking all the time, I did not feel a part of. And so, you know, people just like it's like it's like a selfish and selfless act all in one. Right. Like me extending my hand to you and hitting you up when you were newly sober to say, hey, you want to come to a meeting with me? One, got me to a meeting Mm -hmm. and two, hopefully got you to a meeting. Yeah, totally. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for for all that you've done for me and for sharing today. Um, Thanks for everything you do for me. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, If you haven't heard, have you heard the podcast before? Yeah. Yeah, So I usually wrap it up on a little lighter note. I usually talk about my guilty pleasure which is reality tv but i've gotten very into two shows that are it's not reality tv and i've you and i have talked about one the new show shrill i would call that a a dramedy right like a drama comedy yeah wouldn't you it's so good i've binged it in a day it's only like five episodes five or six episodes. five or six episodes have you finished it finished it Yeah. so when i while i was watching i was like this is what my soul has needed i needed that show so so badly yeah like it's a book i told you that it's a book by lindy west and it's a memoir it's a it almost we Everything didn't, the way they did it in the show, I think they changed some situations just because it was probably better for TV, right? But all those things happened to her in one form or another. You can see that she starts off, the the main character, like with really low Mm self-esteem and self-confidence and just letting people like walk all over her Mm -hmm. and use her. And then throughout the season, she, that grows and grows. She arcs, yeah. yeah, And then she stands up for herself mm -hmm. and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And bullshit. now, she, now in real life, the woman, right? Her name is Lindy West, is one of the baddest like feminist writers of our time. Book. I mean, she's that's awesome, incredible. It kind of reminded me of like Broad City with mm-hmm. like some of the comedy, but also the show Girls with mm-hmm. just like the way that it was filmed mm-hmm. and kind of like mm-hmm. the production. Setup. Yeah, I agree. It's a great it? show. Yeah, I think really everyone good. run, don't walk to your Hulu account right now and watch um, it. Also on Hulu, have you seen Pen Fifteen? No. Oh my gosh, I started watching it today, like, and what I cannot it? stop. It's basically about these two girls in middle school. And I found out that the two girls, the two main characters are actually 30 years old. I thought they were actually middle school girls. They do such a good job of playing these characters. And it's just kind of like an honest look at like the awkwardness and funny things that we go through in middle school. But it's just like so, so real. And it's hilarious. And I just I I'm only on episode three so okay. more to come on that but i highly recommend okay that i'll too. check that out i'll check that out yeah, yeah it's yeah. so funny so yeah. cool well thanks again for being here thank you for having me it was yeah. really good to share my story i, I actually haven't done it. that in a while and it's good to remember what it was like all right well we'll see you guys next weekend thanks jill thank you